The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's not like we needed to wait two years to see charges against Muhammad Khalifa. You know, it's been known for at least a year who he is, where he is, and what he did. There's all kinds of evidence, as Amar pointed to, you know, potentially hundreds of hours of his voice narrating these videos. And yet no charges came from the Canadian government and no effort was made to charge him. So I find that quite striking is that we know where he was. We knew exactly what he did. And we made no effort at all to bring him to justice. And it seems like the United States has decided to take matters into their own hands, likely because of the significance of who he was. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 5th, 2021. Over the weekend, news broke about U.S. prosecutors in the Eastern District of Virginia indicting Mohammed Khalifa, a Canadian who traveled to Syria in 2013 and later joined the Islamic State, where he became the English language voice with a distinct North American accent for a series of Islamic State propaganda videos. The indictment is a big deal, both because of the person it implicates and because it's a U.S. court trying a Canadian man for crimes committed in Iraq and Syria. To break it all down, I talked with Leah West, an assistant professor of international affairs and national security law at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, which is a part of Carleton University in Canada, and with Amarnath Amarasinghe. The two are experts on Canadian foreign fighters leaving Canada to go join the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, and they're also in the unique position of having interviewed Khalifa at a Syrian Democratic Forces prison a couple years ago. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 5th. U.S. prosecutors indict a Canadian ISIS propagandist. Leah, get us started here. We'll, we'll talk a bit about who this person is later on, but, but first, tell us what happened. What, what's the news event? Well, the big news is that the FBI obtained uh, Mohammed Khalifa from Syrian custody. Uh, he was in custody of the Kurds in northeastern Syria, brought him back to the United States, where the Eastern District of Virginia um, have has charged uh, Mohammed Khalifa with conspiracy material support terrorism, meaning ISIS, and he uh, is going to face criminal prosecution in the United States. And so while that's not super unusual, and the United States has gained possession and, and brought a number of individuals back to the United States to face prosecution, my understanding is those are typically Americans. Um, and in this case, it's a Canadian who has been repatriated to the wrong world because he's not American, but has been brought back to the United States to face criminal prosecution for his, his role in supporting and facilitating the activities of ISIS. 
Yeah, so we'll get back to a lot of that in a bit. But Amar, first, I'm curious to, to hear a bit more about who this person is. So so who is this guy and what is he and his unit known for? So that's interesting. I mean, he, he's he's one of the few, we've had a few Canadians who've taken on kind of important media roles, but I would say he's the most important one. He was born in Saudi Arabia in 1983. He came to Canada studied computer networking and things like that in Toronto, eventually decided to travel to Syria in, I would say, mid to late 2013. He didn't join ISIS right away at the time. He, he kind of jumped around a few different organizations uh, that a lot of other foreign fighters were in. And then he joined ISIS. The first time kind of, I think the rest of us heard him or heard his voice was in the September 2014 Flames of War video. And and I remember quite vividly when this video came out, telling a few people, you know, this guy sounds like he's from Toronto. <laughs> and, but it, it was kind of dismissed or I, I kind of brushed it aside because it was, you know, why would a random guy from Toronto be in such a high position in, in the ISIS media apparatus. But later when Stuart Bell and I went to Syria in October 2018, I asked another fighter who was in, in, in prison at the time, and he kind of confirmed, you know, yeah, this guy's from Toronto, and he goes by the name Abu Ridwan al-Kennedy. And so that that kind of, again, I, I put it aside, didn't know what to do with it. And then he was eventually captured in early 2019. And then one of his friends in Toronto immediately sent me a DM on Twitter and said, you know, I, I know this guy and, and started talking about him. And then also mentioned that when he was in Toronto, they called him Abu Ridwan al-Kennedy, right? And so that's when kind of all these things, all these different people became the same person. But his importance is quite significant in, in the ISIS media apparatus because he's the voice behind Flames of War 1 and 2, he is the voice behind almost every single Albayan radio broadcast that ISIS put out, which was a daily broadcast. He's also behind several kind of claims that ISIS has put out after attacks. Um, he narrated the famous structure of the Hilafa video and, and on and on. So, you know, we literally have dozens, if not hundreds of hours of, of his audio basically narrating English language ISIS propaganda. And, and this will become relevant later on, but... He made his way to Syria by way of Canada, is that right? Or did he did he leave from somewhere else? No, he went from Toronto to Egypt. Uh, he told his mom that he was just visiting Egypt to get, get better at Arabic, and then traveled from Egypt to Syria and, and crossed over from, uh, I think it was like the Idlib, Idlib border. Gotcha. And so so you two have your own experience. Amar, you talked a bit about this, but but you guys interviewed him right again in 2019. Talk to me a bit. I'd be curious to hear from both of you what, what that was like. Yeah, I mean, he was one of the, once he was captured and we decided to go back to Syria, I mean, he was on the top of the list in terms of who we wanted to talk to. And he'd been interviewed by then uh, and after by, you know, lots of other Western journalists as well. But one thing, I mean, that struck me about him is he's very thoughtful, very articulate, very deliberate in kind of what he believes his role in ISIS was, why he joined. There's, There's no sign of regret there at all. There's no sign of kind of rethinking why he joined, et cetera. And, and I say that because a lot of other fighters that we've talked to do have a sense of remorse, right? They, they've, they've been wanting to leave for, uh, for a while, especially after they had kids. But uh, Abu Ridwan, I think, is, is quite unique. I mean, he, he, he was committed to the very end. And he mentioned, you know, ISIS, as they were losing territory in 2019, basically put more importance on uh, people like him and the media apparatus in general because they realized that as they were losing physical territory, 
continuing to kind of boast about stuff through the media is going to be much more important. And so he basically went with went with the last uh, holdouts, you know, from Raqqa to Mayadeen uh, to to Bagus, and and kind of eventually decided to pick up arms and 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 kind of fight in the last villages that were that were being held, but his kind of role in the final days was was to kind of carry on the media releases. And Leah, any reflections from your time with him? When we walked in, um, because there were allegations at the time that he might have been the executioner in the Flames of War video, I was kind of expecting someone with a lot of bravado. And he was actually quite, like Amar said, thoughtful I wouldn't say humble, but, you know, not someone who kind of puffed out their chest about their role, but was very cognizant of the importance of what they did. The thing that struck me was when we talked about, because I was really interested in, you know, did he think about the law? Did he think about consequences? I'm a legal researcher, right? Did, Did criminal code provisions have anything to do with whether or not he thought about his choices? You know, did he think about the consequences? And He said, no, he felt he had obligations. And when we talked about whether or not he felt he would face criminal justice, he assumed that he would. And we talked about where he thought that would be. He didn't want it to be in Canada because he wanted his wife and children to be able to join him there. And and he was afraid that his wife and children would be on a no-fly list and he would be on a no-fly list. So they'd never be able to get back together whenever you know, this was all wrapped up, right? And so he was still kind of not fully, I think, grasping the the consequences of his actions in terms of the law. You know, he was thinking about, you know, once he served his sentence, whatever that would be, that he would get to live or he was hoping to live happily ever after with his wife and children, um, which to me was somewhat astonishing but may have just been, you know, the things people have to tell themselves when they're in prison. The other thing is, you know, people keep talking about a Canadian connection or he's, you know, a Canadian citizen, but from Saudi. No, he's a Canadian dude, right? Like he grew up and went to the same high school. My dad went to the same high school, like as, like he is a Toronto boy. He is not, you know, someone who spent a little bit of time in Canada and then moved on. He is very much a Canadian. He grew up in Canada. He, you know, made his plans in Canada. His family is still in Canada. You know, he reached back to his mother who was there. So he's a Toronto boy who ended up in Syria and now finds himself in the Eastern District of Virginia facing criminal prosecution. The other thing that I'll add to that is, uh, yeah, he's absolutely, you know, born and bred or not born and bred, but at least, you know, grew up in Canada, grew up in Toronto. And his radicalization period starts a bit late, right? So he, it, it, it um, I think he told us it was in 2008 or something, you know, when he was 25, that he first started to get in touch with his religious identity again, went on these online forums, started listening to uh, the usual suspect of Anwar Awlaki and and started to think about, you know, his duty as a Muslim to go and uh, fight on behalf of his people, etc. And and so, in you know, 2008, 2009, and a few years later, he's already in Syria. And so the, the kind of speed at which these decisions are made is also quite interesting. And Amar, I'm curious, you, you've had a lot of interaction with, with folks in Canada who have gone down radicalization paths. How How is this guy similar or different from from those folks. You mentioned the 
sort of lack of bravado, but other stuff that that comes to mind. I mean, I think I think there's a several similarities um, in that you know he he didn't necessarily have a rough childhood. His parents were divorced, but that that's not necessarily a causal explanation for anything. But he, you know, he said he grew up happy, grew up well, kind of situated in school, studied at a college in, in Toronto. All of that is quite common, uh, at least amongst the Canadian cohort that have gone to Syria. It's also common that a lot of Canadians have ended up in um, media roles, or at least have had propaganda importance in ISIS media. You know, you talk about Andre Poulin from Timmins, who was in the early, one of the earliest videos that ISIS put out saying, you know, he was just a young kid in Toronto playing hockey and then decided that he had to go, you know, fulfill his duty to the cause, etc. There's several Canadians who kind of were put up front by the Islamic State media apparatus as, as potential propaganda tools. What's kind of unique about him is his level of commitment, whereas, whereas most of the other ones that I've spoken with, and, and, and especially after their capture, were quite critical of the Islamic State, were kind of deflated as people. Muhammad Ali, for example, from Mississauga, he, he, you know, he was just completely exhausted by the time we spoke to him in October 2018. He had several kids. He was exhausted with the drones. He was exhausted uh, living amongst the bombs and the, and the killings, really wanted a kind of different life for his children. But Ridwan or Abu Ridwan wasn't like that. <laughs> and so that, that's a, that was a bit of a unique aspect to him. He was, he was quiet and thoughtful, but very much still committed to the cause and, and uh, you know, very supportive of ISIS till the very end. So the three of us have, have all alluded to this, but it might be helpful for, especially for people who are a little bit less familiar. Leah, could you talk a little bit about the circumstances of his detention in Syria, right? So how did it come to be that he, along with a pretty significant number of other North Americans, Europeans, other foreign fighters are in Syrian Democratic Forces allied custody? Well, basically, as U.S. forces and Kurdish forces were retaking northeastern Syria, you know, they the fighting moved from town to town, and as they retook those towns, um, individuals who were continuing to fight for ISIS ultimately were captured or surrendered to either Kurdish or U.S. forces, and they were transferred into Kurdish custody, and so now there are. Amar probably knows the better number. I believe it's about four thousand um, men who are imprisoned in in northeastern Syria, and they continue to be held in prisons. They've not been charged um, with any specific offense, but essentially they were picked up on the battlefield and they remain in prison until a choice can be made with respect to whether or not they will be repatriated, where they'll face prosecution, or in the case of Mohammed Khalifa, transported to the United States. And some of them have actually started to be prosecuted. Those who are local to the region, to Syria, Iraq, face prosecution within the Kurdish justice system in northeastern Syria. And just to footstomp a little bit of what you're saying. So, Leah, I think we we talked maybe 14 months ago. We, we had a big podcast in which we discussed the developments or lack thereof on this front. Do you have a sense of how much things have changed, if at all, in the last 14 months? Because as best I can tell, there's very little movement aside from a few high-profile cases, most notably the, the so-called Beatles who, who got repatriated also to the Eastern District of Virginia. No, things have really stalled. Um, I believe in the summer, the U.S. announced that it had repatriated all U.S. citizens that it planned to prosecute. So I guess now we're expanding to other countries. The unplanned ones, yeah. Yes, um, but otherwise, no. Repatriations typically still tend to be of uh, women and children if they are happening. The men 
have largely remained in their makeshift prisons without charge. And very few states seem willing. I mean, some have, there are a few that have, but the large majority, especially of Western nations, refuse to actually prosecute and calls from the Kurds to create some sort of international process by which other countries or international tribunal of some sort could be stood up to uh, prosecute the men and women who remain in detention within northeastern Syria have fallen on deaf ears and such that I think they've really stopped making them. I was communicating with members of the NES, you know, who were trying to get trials going um, for two summers ago and then the pandemic hit and then it was trying to get them going for last summer and and really there's just there's no international will to assist the Kurdish authorities in in some sort of process because there's all kinds of tricky legal issues around it so essentially they remain jailed indefinitely in I know we're not you know many people won't shed a tear for them but in really inhumane conditions and and there doesn't seem to be any progress except for the the few who like the United States want to make the point of bringing to justice. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers 
with my personal information. 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So I think all that's probably a helpful um, segue to the question of What's so significant about this? There's Leah, you mentioned earlier there's it's pretty common that we see Department of Justice press releases about various people being charged often in the Eastern District of Virginia with material support in connection with with ISIS related activities. But this one has gotten a bit more attention at least is my sense. And I'm curious to hear from both of you. Do you think that's because does it have to do with the profile of the person or is the the explanation for it having more to do with the sort of weird legal machinations going on here. I'll let Leah take the legal question, but I think, um, yeah, I think partly it has to do with the profile of the person, um, his kind of background as voicing basically dozens and dozens of uh, English language ISIS propaganda is is one. I think the fact that a lot of Western journalists have actually spoken to him and know, know his story is another. There's a lot of prisoners whose story we don't know, for instance. Um, and so that that contributes to the kind of storytelling that that we're seeing and i think i think for from a canadian perspective we do have several kind of dual citizens canadian and american citizens who are held prisoner but the fact that he's a you know strictly a canadian citizen 
shows that there might also be something else going on in terms of whether he had a role within ISIS that was, you know, something that we don't know, something higher up uh, in the actual leadership, not just in the media department. And so all of that, I think, might come out in court if it ever does go to court. I think for me and, and why I think Canadians care because it's a Canadian and we haven't had any Canadians who have had prominent roles in ISIS actually face criminal prosecution before because Canada has not repatriated anyone who was detained in northeastern Syria. Those who were charged early in, you know, between 2013 and 2015 with criminal offenses related, Puran was one that Amar mentioned, are dead. And we've had very few prosecutions in Canada of individuals who actually went abroad and actually did join ISIS and came back and have subsequently faced prosecution. Realistically, there's been one-ish of those cases that reached actual prosecution, and there's two pending. But the rest of our other kind of ISIS cases have all been people who attempted to leave Canada, were alleged to have attempted to leave Canada to join ISIS, and, and didn't make it all the way there. So to actually see someone prosecuted for what they did abroad, especially when it's it's not shrouded in secrecy like two of the cases that we have that are still proceeding before the courts, it is unique. But the other thing that I think is quite remarkable here is that it's not like we needed to wait two years to see charges against Muhammad Khalifa. You know, it's been known for at least a year who he is, where he is, and what he did. There's all kinds of evidence, as Amari pointed to, you know, potentially hundreds of hours of his voice narrating these videos. And yet no charges came from the Canadian government and no effort was made to charge him. So I find that quite striking is that we know where he was. We knew exactly what he did. And we made no effort at all to bring him to justice. And it seems like the United States has decided to take matters into their own hands, likely because of the significance of who he was. And is that right? There's, there's was no, at least we don't have any sense of any effort on behalf of Canadian law enforcement to build a case against this guy. Is it, Leah, walk us through maybe why, why is that? Actually, we do know that there was efforts um, to build a case against him. CBC obtained documents that said that they were prepared to lay charges. The issue is the RCMP does not want to lay charges until the individuals will be repatriated. The same is true of Muhammad Ali, who Amar also interviewed. So we know that a case has been built, but because of essentially, you know, kind of jurisprudence related to charter rights that said, you know, once charges are brought, you have to do everything to bring them before a court and proceed to trial in a certain amount of time. There is no political will to actually bring people back to Canada so that process can be carried through. So nobody wants to start the clock by laying a charge because they know the government will not repatriate them. Um, and the government continues to not repatriate any Canadians except for one orphaned girl um, last Thanksgiving. And that is purely a political decision. So while we have the cases, they could be tried in Canada. There's a political decision to not repatriate them. So those cases never go to trial. And and uh, let me add, I mean, we're talking, uh, as Leah alluded to, we're talking about you know, over two dozen children as well, right? And so, when I when I used to give interviews like this in 2019, I used to say there are 20 uh, odd children who are under the age of five. 
held in, in Syrian prison camps. And that's no longer true. They're all getting older in these camps, right? And so many of the, like Ridwan was captured in January 2019. We're going on three years now where these guys have just been just been sitting there and there's been um, no real effort to, to bring them back. And that includes uh, dozens and dozens of children as well. And the only time that that any movement has been made is either this one orphan that was brought back or uh, when a British diplomat got involved uh, a couple months ago and basically convinced the Kurds to let somebody go, let one of the other women go along with her child. Um, and so Canadian government seems to be kind of repeatedly caught off guard by developments that are happening, which I don't think is is uh, the smart way to move ahead. <laughs> I'll just jump in quickly and Mar probably misspoke there. It was actually a U.S. diplomat that got another Canadian child out of a camp and then subsequently got her mother out of a camp and her mother is now sitting in herbal because the Canadian government won't produce, you know, her constitutional right to travel documents so that she can return to Canada. They did nothing, some suspect, because of the election. So the Canadian government's response to date has been to do nothing. And it's important to note not just that there's dozens of dozens of children, there's only four men. Four Canadian men. Four Canadian men. And so we know for sure that there are cases built against two of them already. One of the third being Jack Letts, who is probably well known to your listeners, who is a British jihadi Jack, who also has Canadian citizen, whose citizenship was stripped by the British. And then there's a fourth individual who uh, we believe is, is quite mentally ill. And so, you know, the equity here... <laughs> is that um, to avoid the the public backlash of returning potentially four men, two of whom we know charges could be brought against, they've left dozens and dozens of Canadian children in these camps. And Leah, to the extent that you know, and based on you know publicly available statements or, or things that you've heard in talking to folks about this, what's the U.S. rationale right for having such a relatively forward-leaning posture on repatriation question, right? The U.S., repatriates foreign fighters who who have no discernible connection in the United States and tries them in U.S. courts and also has had a generally very forward-leaning posture on getting U.S. citizens back into U.S. courts, right? And I should say it's not repatriation if they're not U.S. citizen. But I'm curious what you make of the sort of policy logic behind the U.S. position here. I think it's a commitment to holding those who were members and supporters and, and advancers of the ISIS cause to justice. And there's no international will to do that. And the United States, who took an incredibly important and active role in ending ISIS control in northeastern Syria, remains committed to, to that cause. And I should say that the international community, including Canada, is bound by UN Security Council resolutions to do certain things to bring members of ISIS to justice. And the U.S. is upholding that. And I would say that you could make the passive personality argument here in that um, the actions of Mohammed Khalifa certainly did impact um, Americans. It certainly did lead to um, the recruitment of Americans into the cause of ISIS. He called on Americans to, if they could not travel abroad, to take actions and, and bring attacks within the United States. He referenced with glory the, the killing of Americans in these videos. So arguably his actions did seriously contribute to the injury to Americans. And, and so I don't think it's inappropriate here for the extension of American jurisdiction in this case 
And, you know, I, I applaud the United States for taking its responsibility to holding members of ISIS to justice because domestic courts are really the only option here. And you have to bring them before a domestic court in order to do that, which a lot of countries have proven unwilling to do. And just zooming out to, to other countries, too, you, you mentioned that the United States is fairly unique in its willingness to, to repatriate, and, and that includes lots and lots of countries in Europe. So, so stepping back and sort of thinking about the broader picture here, you talked about the humanitarian concerns of, of having these people in jails that are not particularly well-maintained. I'm also curious about the security concerns of the sort of stasis of, of where things are at. We've spoken about this a bit before on podcasts, but it might be helpful to get into some of it again here. Yeah, sure. I, I think, I mean, we saw, I mean, the pandemic has confused my dating a little bit, but I, I think it was um, a year or two ago when, when, when the Turks were, when there was a challenge to the border with the, from the Turkish authorities that um, we had several prison breaks. We had one of the camps where a lot of these women were held you know, the women just left one of the one of the prisons where the men were also got opened and many people left. So there's always these dangers of, you know, prison breaks, prison violence. Um, if the Turks again decide that uh, certain cities in Kurdish control are actually theirs, um, some of these cities actually contain camps and prisons as well. And so, you know, your your prisoners can become, uh, can easily become under the control of the Turkish authorities. And so there's a lot of kind of unknowns that are at play here. And we also know that when, when there was a challenge by the Turks, uh, the Kurds also relocated a hundred or so of their soldiers who were guarding Al-Hol camp to the border, right? And so they're, they're also going to do what they need to do to protect uh, their borders as well. And so there's, there's a lot of kind of unknowns in, in terms of uh, the security of the situation, which again, can all be mitigated if we just tried our own people. And so, Liam, I have one question about the substance of the indictment itself before we move to to closing thoughts here. So, when I look at what's in the indictment and sort of look at look at the facts alleged, it seems fairly. And as you say, there are many many clips of this person talking at length on the internet about ISIS involved activities. And the Justice Department, in general, has a quite strong track record in in winning these cases and getting people to plead out. What do you make of the prospects for for his case with the caveat that you know this is US courts not Canadian courts? Well, the one thing I can say about American courts instead of Canadian courts is that your terrorism prosecutions go much more smoothly and I suspect that he will be convicted because there is just overwhelming evidence. Not only the fact that there's all this evidence, he told Amar and I what he did. You know, they can go <laughs> to the stand if they want. And the interesting thing to me that was new from an evidentiary standpoint, which I hadn't heard before, was the details around his actual engagement in the conflict near the end before he was detained. It talks about his actions to try and throw grenades and, and take out Curtis' position, which, quite frankly, he definitely left out when he talked to us. And I think that would have been evidence that would have been obtained from Kurdish forces. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that becomes admitted into evidence. That would be something that I'd be interested in, at least from a Canadian perspective. But the rest of the evidence collected against him is stuff that was collected from within the United States for the most part, right? They have his records of his email chats with others, including his family member back in Canada, explaining what he did and why he left. And then they have all of the recordings of what he, he'd done. So all of that evidence should be easily admissible. And I suspect, you know, it would be very hard for him at this point to deny his guilt after having 
been so cavalier about sharing what he did with people like Amar and I. And so to close, I'm curious to hear from both of you what you think might be the broader lesson here, right? It's always It can be always a bit tricky to draw a bigger picture lesson from an individual case, but I think this one is certainly conducive to that. So Leah, maybe we can start with you. What's the one thing you see here as being an important thing to, to sort of keep in mind going forward? I think the, the big picture for me is that this is, a, again, an example of Canada's failure to live up to its commitments. Um, with respect to ISIS and bringing those who first we failed in preventing Canadians like Mohammed Khalifa from traveling abroad. And then we failed to bring them to justice, even though we know exactly what they did. And that is something that we've seen repeatedly since 2013. And I think requires real reflection on the part of Canadian security services and the Justice Department. And unfortunately, I really don't think we're going to get it. And Amar? Um, don't join ISIS, I think, is a good takeaway here. Uh, just, um, a, a perpetual but, takeaway. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> an ever, evergreen evergreen takeaway. Um, no, I, I agree with Leah. I mean, I think it's just, I find it endlessly frustrating. It, it's almost t- 2022, and we're giving the same interviews, talking about the same issues, talking about the same inaction. And, you know, Two dozen Canadian kids are just getting older in these camps filled with malnutrition and acute illnesses, uh, surviving a pandemic and, and, and so on. And I think it's just morally reprehensible to me. And I, you know, um, I, I don't know when it's going to change. We, keep, we, we saw the election excuse come and go. We've had uh, two elections uh, since, since that argument was put forth and uh, nothing has happened since. And so I don't know how old these kids are going to be by the time we decide to actually allow them to come home. I will just say that there is now an application for judicial review of the government's decision not to repatriate Canadians from northeastern Syria before the Federal Court of Canada, which will hopefully produce more than what we've seen in the past from the government in terms of reasons for why they haven't yet. And, you know, if successful, the remedy that they're seeking is to force the government to take action. I think given the foreign policy nature and security nature of that question, it'll be a hard an uphill battle. But um, I do look forward to seeing the government be called to account and have to put evidence forward as to why it continues to do nothing. Super interesting. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you both for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer this week was Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo. And the podcast is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patiahal. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast if you use a podcast service that allows you to do so. And if not, and even if so, please consider sharing us on Twitter or Facebook or sending the link to a friend who might be interested. And your music, as always, is performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening. What does it take to move the needle on the world's toughest problems? 
On Better Heroes, we've sourced the globe for passionate individuals and visionary companies who are all on a mission to solve humanity's most urgent challenges. Like, can AI make the world a better place? How can we change our consumption habits to better serve the environment? And what can we do to make our financial systems work for all? This series will convince you that humanity can save itself and our planet. Better Heroes is by EY and produced by Human Group Media. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.